G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, much to our dismay and disappointment, life doesn't always go to plan. Sometimes our hopes and dreams are shattered. Sometimes it's the fault or the negligence of others or we make decisions that are less than perfect and oftentimes it's circumstances that are simply beyond our own control. But when we are cast adrift, when the excitement has been drained, there's a risk that we may begin to lose our sense of identity. Well, this is part of the story of Australian author and speaker Sheridan Voisey, who, having been confronted, along with his wife Merrin, with infertility and a dramatic move overseas and a career change, he felt he'd lost touch with who he was. His new book is about this part of his story that so many of us might relate to. It's called The Making of Us. Who we can become when life doesn't go as planned. Sheridan is joining us on the line from the UK. Welcome along to 2020. To you, Sheridan Voisey. Oh, it's good to talk to you again, Neil. Sheridan, love conversations with you, and your book is fabulous. Your new book, The Making of Us. Let's spend a little while just talking about it. We've talked before on some of your earlier books, uh, you and your wife, Merrin, not able to have children, and you've told that story, but this one is a pilgrimage journey, a deep soul searching uh, take us back to the need you recognised before going on a pilgrimage like this. Yeah. Yes, well, indeed, 10 years of trying to have a family, not being able to, and then my wife, Marin, as you mentioned, getting offered a job at Oxford University. So we kind of take that opportunity for her to have a new beginning because she was really needing something new. Moved to the UK, turned out to be a great move for Merrin, turned out to be a little bit more of a difficult move for me because uh, I loved Australia, Neil. I loved everything that was happening um, uh, for me. I was, I was living in Sydney for the last five years uh, before we moved to the UK, uh, hosting the open house show that was heard on vision and uh, had great opportunities. And then when we came over to the UK, it was very much like I had to start again. I went to a publisher, remember, once uh, to talk about a book idea that I had, and the publisher said, well, who's Sheridan Boise? Nobody knows who you are here. Come back to us when you're well-known. Come back to us when you're famous. And I thought, okay, great, I'll just arrange that by next Thursday, and I'll come back to you, you know. So it was a a real soul-searching time, and I thought the two big human questions that we have, who are we, what are we doing here, which, of course, we ask in a personal sense, who am I? What am I doing here? I thought those could be answered once and then pretty much put aside. And the answers that I came to those questions in my 20s, they lasted me for a good 15, 20 years. And then I found myself asking those questions all over again. So, yes, it was a pilgrimage that then began from that point 
uh, a pilgrimage of spirit, but then it was connected with a, a, an actual physical pilgrimage, uh, walking for 116 miles in England's north. So that's what led to it. I, I wasn't sure, well, who am I now? And what should I be doing now? Should I stay in broadcasting? Should I keep on writing? If I write books, is anybody going to publish them? And if none of that works out, well, am I really a broadcaster? Am I really a writer? Am I a speaker? I've got to find an identity that's deeper than all those things. These days you live in Oxford and your wife, Meryn, working as a medical researcher. But just where you live, as I understand it, as you've said in your book, you're living just down the road from where C.S. Lewis wrote some of his classic books. Uh, the sort of place that you live in, in the UK, it's really steeped in all sorts of history and the sorts of things that have gone before you almost set a scene for going a little deeper. Oh, very much so. I mean, Oxford has been seen as um, a city of influence, and I can't remember what the final figure is now, but it's a good 40 or 50 world presidents, prime ministers, uh, have been trained through Oxford University. So it's quite a centre of um, of education and then um, sending those people out around the world. Great sense of Christian history. Um, indeed, C.S. Lewis writing his, his uh, Narnia Chronicles and mere Christianity and everything in a house uh, uh, about five, six miles walk from where I am here. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings um, in a little house that's probably a little bit closer, maybe two or three miles away. Um, you've got, uh, John Wesley walked these streets. In fact, uh, he preached in the Anglican Church in the High Street here in Oxford, which was probably the last time he preached in the Anglican Church before he left and founded the Methodist Church. Um, you've got all of those little things here, amazing. Um, George Whitfield here, you know, all things like that. So it's, it's, it's quite inspiring, and I have to say in, in some cases quite intimidating, because uh, it, it's, it's quite an amazing town, and yet you can't get into it. Uh, there is what they call here the town-gown divide. So town being just the regular, you know, middle-class folks, and then uh, the gown being the educational establishment. I can't walk into Oxford University or any one of its uh, colleges and sit in on a lecture. You know, this is the elite that are welcomed to, to Oxford, the elite uh, academics and brilliant minds that are able to get in. Uh, I couldn't get in, so uh, even if I, if I wanted to. So it's a, it's a funny town in that regard. Immense history, immense influence, uh, and yet something that can be held at an arm's distance, really, uh, for, for those people who actually live here. Wonderful history, and as you describe that, I can just imagine in the years to come, people will go past your place and say, oh, that's where Sheridan Voisey lived. <laughs> you never know, do you? <laughs> Hey, let's talk about... This Sorry. is why we, I so love your conversations, uh, Neil. You're always so empowering. There's little blue symbols here. They have them on all of those famous houses. I don't think I'm going to get a little blue symbol with my name on it, but uh, that's very nice of you. <laughs> let's talk about your journey, this pilgrimage of yours. And not everyone listening will know the geography, but you started in Lindisfarne and headed to Durham on foot. A hundred-mile pilgrimage. Give us a little insight into what your walk was like. Yeah. Well, picking up on our last little conversation about history, 
Christianity came to the what we now know as the United Kingdom back then, you know, Britain or whatever it was called, um, probably back in the second century with the Romans, but it never actually took root in the, the British heart, if you like. Uh, when the Romans went back with their tail between their legs in the fourth century, Christianity died here. It was then a bunch of Irish missionaries that were working out of uh, a little island called Lindisfarne uh, back in the sixth, seventh, 8th century that were really instrumental in the gospel actually taking root in the British soil here. And so these great missionaries, great they're now called saints here, St. Cuthbert and Aidan and Bede and Hilda uh, and many others, uh, were just aflame with the love of God, aflame with the power of God, and would um, travel the land and, and preach the gospel, and they saw the, the locals actually come to faith. So Lindisfarne is an amazing little place. It's a tiny little island. It's a tidal island. It floods twice a day. You can only get onto it at, at certain hours because of that. You get onto it either by driving about 15 or 20 minutes on the causeway, which floods, of course, so you, you can't do it uh, if uh, it's high tide. Or you can do what I did, and you walk the Pilgrim's Way, which is across the mudflats. And that's about three miles. That'll take about an hour and a half to do. And this is where monks later on carried Cuthbert's body when they were escaping the Vikings. So everything that we know about the Vikings also comes from Lindisfarne. It was the first little island they hit when the Vikings invaded England. So you've got this amazing place with this amazing history. And then Cuthbert later on was laid to rest in Durham. The cathedral at Durham was then built to house his shrine. And then the city of Durham was built around him. So you've got this amazing figure of, of English Christianity and it just seems wonderful to be able to walk in those steps uh, that he would have walked and um, certainly that his body was taken later on when they were fleeing, fleeing the Vikings. Sometimes seems unusual to us in our Australian Christianity to think of being inspired by someone like St Cuthbert and I know you yeah. well enough Sheridan to know that you're, you've got your Baptist background and doesn't always fit with that but there's something about yeah. the history and there's something about these personalities you reflect on the idea that we often try to seek our worth in lesser things than God. Is this what Cuthbert had as his own uh, ideal, as his own ethos? And is this something that inspired you to go this deeper uh, route of finding out about the making of yourself? Yeah, I, I found out more about Cuthbert while we were on pilgrimage than I had known beforehand. And uh, the more and more I discovered, the more and more I liked. Um, indeed, just as you say, Neil, I'm not really inspired by the you know, saints of old and you know, certainly don't think we should pray to them or anything like that. Um, and sometimes you read uh, some of the things that they believed and you, 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 know, you certainly feel uncomfortable. I certainly do. When you read the life of Cuthbert, it's very, very different. You don't find him praying to Mary, for instance. Um, you find him aflame with the Spirit of God. He seems to have been someone that God did great miracles through. He loved the Bible. His favorite gospel book was the, the Gospel of John. Um, he was sacrificial. He was really a solitude, uh, solitudinal personality at heart. And yet when he was called to be a Christian leader, he, he went and did it, even though he much would rather have stayed praying in his little cave. Um, so We've got a lot of great things that we can emulate there. Um, he would let go of his own desires for the desires of God. He would uh, preach the gospel any, everywhere he went. A man of the Bible, a man of the Holy Spirit, um, 
there's this beautiful story that uh, really caught me about Cuthbert. There was, this is the 7th century, so we don't have medicines, we don't have penicillin. Plague is ravaging the country. And at one stage, uh, Cuthbert and his friend go into a little village that has been ravaged by the plague, and, and so many people have lost family members. And so he comes there, and he prays for everybody, and uh, he gives little sermons. And uh, as they're about to move on to the next village, he says to his friend, do you think there's anybody that we haven't prayed for yet? I don't want to leave until there's one person, you know, that we've, we've prayed to the very last person. And uh, the friend looks around and finds somebody. And it's this mother. And she's standing at a distance because she doesn't want to come near, you know, the great Cuthbert. And he walks over to her. She's holding a uh, plague-ravaged child. She's already lost one son. Looks like she's about to lose this son as well. Cuthbert takes the child into his hands, which is an amazing thing in itself. He prays for the child. He then foretells that uh, this child is not going to die. He's going to live. God's going to heal him. Prays for him, kisses him on the forehead, hands the child back. And indeed, as history tells it, the, uh, the child did live. And it just seems to me that of all the amazing things that we can know about Cuthbert and you know, a whole city built around him, which he didn't have any desire to have, that will be the thing that's written in the, the book of life for him, is that he would take this little child and he would kiss it and bless it and pray for it. Uh, that just shows the humility that uh, it was a part of this man's personality and, and why I've really grown to love him. I think Cuthbert will make as many friends as you will when people read your book. Uh, Fabulous. It's called The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned. Sheridan Voise is our guest. He's a writer, a speaker, a broadcaster on faith and spirituality. We're back to talk some more about his new book in just a few moments. Well, we find ourselves with a wonderful opportunity to really dig a little deeper into the idea that when things don't go so well, that when things don't go as planned in our lives, we might be able to seek God and find some deeper answers. Our special guest is Sheridan Voisey, a writer, speaker, broadcaster, talking about his new book called The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned. Sheridan, you're on this pilgrimage. You're getting a few things straightened out. You're staying in places, B&Bs, that even have a place in the nation's history books in the UK. You're now looking to hear from God. You are a listener trying to hear the voice of God. What's the difference between having a deliberately listening ear and someone who says, oh, you know, I was going about my work, I was going about my normal life, and I heard the voice of God. When you're deliberately listening, what's the difference? What a great question. Um, we could write a book on that together, Neil. That's, um, that's a you know, brilliant question. Uh, <laughs> Next project. There's no doubt. <laughs> exactly. There's no doubt that the first word that comes to my mind is, is certainly attentionality, is that you... You are making intentional time. You are setting time apart in order to specifically listen to God. Uh, when I first got on to Lindisfarne, I went there for like a three-day retreat before we went on, on the pilgrimage, which took about eight days. And, uh, you know, I grabbed my camera and I ran around Lindisfarne and I took photos because I like photography as well. And at the end of the day, I was, uh, I was sitting overlooking the the beautiful water and I was hearing the seals sing in the background and uh, I remember thinking I've missed something here 
I've been running around as a tourist. I came to be a pilgrim. And the difference was that I had, you know, grabbed that camera. I had gone on and, and, and yes, I'd seen lots of beautiful things. And if you're going to meet God, you'll find him on Lindisfarne because it's just so beautiful. But I hadn't heard from God because I'd been too busy enjoying the place, if you like. The next day, I decided to do something completely different. I wouldn't take the camera. I'd only take my journal, and I'd walk around the island, and I would stop, and I would pray, and I would listen. And that was the difference. And sometimes, you know, God chooses to speak in very clear ways. And other times, you know, all you you have, so to speak, is just a a quiet sense of God's presence. And you know what? In 99% of the time, that is all you need just to know, I am with you, my child. I am with you. And that was very special. I I do talk about an experience in the book where I did hear from God really quite clearly at the beginning of, uh, of this whole event. And it was after probably praying for one or two hours before I finally heard a really clear word come through. And it was to do with my calling that I was to first and foremost seek Him. Uh, my first calling was to be with Him, not to seek a new career or a new dream or a new vision or something like that, a new purpose statement. And that was so important. Those, those moments for me, Neil, are quite rare, but it's, it's, the, it's the intentional setting aside of unhurried, holy time that is just there between you and your Father God. Some of your chapter titles, Caverns and Crossroads, Visions and Whispers, Castles and Ashes, Rivers and Streams, Gifts and Graces. You love these contrasts. And I guess when you're trying to hear from God, there are contrasts because it's what I am thinking now And what God might sow into my heart as a seed of some different direction or different ideal or different value. You've chosen those chapter titles, no doubt, intentionally, but uh, they do take us from what I was to what God is speaking to me about today. Yes, very much so. And I think that is, uh, in essence, part of the the very walk of the Christian, (laughs) is that we have our plans, we have our desires, we have our dreams. And I I don't want us to jettison those. You know, I, I am pursuing dreams that I feel that God... Um, whispered to me some time ago, quite many, many, many years ago, and and they have carried me on because they've be, they've been sifted and discerned, they've been tested out with others, um, they have been uh, sifted for any sense of drivenness. Um, so it really is a sense of call, and I think that's how you can start to discern what a God-given dream is, a God-given whisper versus your own kind of uh, driven desire to create or make something. Um, but in the end, the contrast is, and I had to learn this anew, and I'll have to learn it again, I'm sure, is that God's first and great work, uh, apart from his kingdom work that he's doing out in the world, at a personal level, his first and great work is what he's doing in us and who he is calling us to be. Um, our listeners, many of them, will know that great verse in First John. First John chapter 3, how great the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And then it goes on, and and John says, we don't know what we're going to be yet. We don't know what we're going to become. But we know this, that when he returns, when Jesus returns, uh, we will be like him. And that's the essence of the soul's journey, really, is that we start off our primary identity before we're writers, speakers, broadcasters, educators, uh, engineers, artists, mothers, fathers. We are children of God. 
that's the baseline for us and that identity can't be taken away from us no matter what happens and then we are on this journey this pilgrimage if you like uh, that we are growing to be more like him every day going from glory to glory into his uh, into his image restoring the image of god that was lost back in genesis 3 in in the fall of humankind and you know what that that is god's primary work in us and i think we minimize that neil i think people like me preached wrote somehow thought that they believed that you know oh my my real identity is as a child of god i'll tell you now when you go through a time where those secondary identities are lost when nobody is publishing your books or you know having you speak at their conference or nobody is employing you as an engineer or a teacher or nobody is buying your artwork then you really need to know whether you have let that truth seep deep into your heart that you are a child of god and this is where i'm really going to find my sense of identity and 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 embrace and my sense of acceptance and then we are being changed into his image and that's that's the calling of virtue and i think we've minimized how powerful virtue can be when actually god's very character is birthed in us the very character of jesus becomes manifest in us that uh when we give a word of grace to somebody, when we uh, extend a hand of help, um, when we bring a word of truth, uh, when we give acceptance where anybody, somebody has only ever felt rejection, those little things have an immense echo in people's lives. They, have, they leave an immense legacy, even though I, our names won't be attached to them. But those things pass on from person to person to person. That's what he's calling us to be, and that's how so much of his work gets done. Sometimes we think of transformation, something a little bit like, oh, a bolt of lightning comes out of the blue, and we're transformed, we're changed. Uh, This is a little different to the idea that you're talking about here, that being on this pilgrimage, going through the hardships that we face in our lives, uh, doing this soul-searching, this is a journey of change, a journey of maturity, uh, something I guess we all need to come to grips with in our life. Yeah, yeah, and this is why the, 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 the word pilgrimage works so well, is that whether you go and do a physical pilgrimage uh, at, at all in your whole life, I mean, by the way, you can do a one-day pilgrimage, go and just set a place that you'd like to get to, uh, take water, get yourself prepared by, you know, getting some exercise and things beforehand, get some good shoes, uh, and go and, and have that as a prayer walk from one place to another, have a day's pilgrimage of time with God. That, that's just a good way to get started. You might want to do a longer one like we did, eight, nine, ten days. Uh, but that echoes our life's journey, our life's pilgrimage. Hebrews talks very much about the fact that we are sojourners in this world. That was a very special verse to the Celtic Christians. We are sojourners. We are on a pilgrimage from one place to another, from our earthly existence to heaven. And that during that time is where God does the work in us. And through that is the difficult times. Um, there's a whole chapter in The Making of Us that's called The In-Between Time. And, you know, here we are, we've been walking through this immense beauty in England's north. I mean, there's caves and castles and beautiful beaches, and it's quite amazing, amazing history. And then we, get, we hit the industrial area, and we lose all of that glory. We lose all of that beauty. And by this stage, my friend DJ, who's walking with me, he's got very bad blisters, so he's limping. I've got quite bad hip and back pain as a result of carrying my pack and probably it wasn't uh, strapped on properly or something. Uh, So we're going through this difficult time. We start going through this 
fairly rough area, um, everything changes. And again, that echoes our lives, doesn't it? We each of us go through periods where it's this in-between time. We've got a bit of an idea as to where we're heading. We, we know the, the beauty that is lay behind us. Uh, and yet it's just difficult and it's hard and we don't know where we're going, what God's doing. We can't hear from God for a period of time. Um, all of that echoes our experience. And yet those are the moments where God does our deep, you know, deep, deep work in us. I think he uses the trials so much more than we ever think or want to think to make us the people we're supposed to be. You've got the hip and back pain, your friend DJ, the blisters on the soles of his feet, but you eventually make it to your goal into Durham and you're there where Cuthbert is remembered, Cuthbert's coffin is there. Also what's there is the Lindisfarne Gospels and that was something that you were impressed to see. What value is there in those Lindisfarne Gospels? Oh, please look them up online. Uh, listener, please do it now. <laughs> As we're talking, type in Lindisfarne, L-I-N-D-I-S-F-A-R-N-E, Gospels. 1,300 years old. They only come out of the British Library once every 10 years because they're so frail. Um, they're held in a vacuum-sealed box. These were created uh, in honour of Cuthbert only a few years after he died, and they were done by his, his monks on Lindisfarne, the most beautifully illustrated Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a just wonderful melding of Germanic styles and Celtic styles. Um, and these, uh, these are considered one of the world's most amazing pieces of art. And yet it came from the church. This is the thing, is that so much of these wonderful things come from the church. They come from God's people. Uh, they were out on display at Durham, and so this was part of the reason why we did this pilgrimage, is to go and see them. So we got there. In honesty, uh, Neil, actually, to see them was a little bit of a letdown, because you can only see one page. <laughs> it was opened up there in this special, you know, hallowed room that was all dark, and it was kind of there under uh, these special miniature spotlights down at the end. And it was open to, to a page, and the page was okay. But we had been able to flick our way through a copy of it at another church where Cuthbert had kind of spent some time um, in an earlier stage, uh, about to, well, four or five miles up the road. And we had flipped through these amazing pages of this amazing illustration. They saw that their illustration was part of worship. Their work was the worship. Their art was their worship. And all of it was to illuminate the gospel, illuminate the words of Jesus, illuminate uh, the great message of God's love for us, uh, salvation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and our response to that by becoming followers of him. And uh, an amazing event, um, one that doesn't happen very often. So yes, please look up the amazing art of the Lindisfarne Gospels and see how they can be almost a devotional tool that the beauty of them can actually draw us close to God as we reflect on what they've captured in those images. Well, towards the end of your journey, you've made it to your goal. You've suffered those aches and pains. You've seen the the Lindisfarne Gospels. And towards the end of your book, you let us in on something that's happened through the soul searching that's gone on, through the deeper thinking that you've had, the journaling that you've done on your pilgrimage. And what the culmination is in your book is the formation of a new personal creed. 
Give us a little insight into the value of writing a creed like you've done. Yeah. You know, the history of, history of the church is that we've got numerous creeds that kind of bring into simple and positive statements what we believe. And they were written to counteract error, to counteract heresy. I think we can do one for ourselves personally that can also do that, that can keep us away from false belief, wrong thinking, and can guide us to positive thinking, uh, gospel thinking, biblical thinking about who we are and our place in the world. And, uh, you know, The Making of Us is a book that just didn't come about by a few days pilgrimage and, you know, a few days retreat. I, I reflected on all of that for another four years and then spent a couple of years writing the book. And I think that's important to mention that some of the things that I've discovered, they came after the pilgrimage as I was reflecting back on it. I, one day I thought, I want to somehow bring all these lessons together. And so I brought them together in this, uh, in this creed. Um, there's a long version in the book, or there's a, a little bit of a shorter version that you can download. And uh, I'd love to read that to you if we have time. Yes, let's take that time. And uh, you read it to us, the creed. Yeah. Uh, this is the short version. Yeah. The hand that spins the galaxies brought me into being. The one who holds the stars has made me his own. I am God's child. My life is rich. My days are sacred. I am held by a love that's wider and higher than the farthest edges of this expanding universe. I am a pilgrim in this world, in search of wisdom and wonder. I will take new adventures and follow God into the unknown. What I achieve is not as important as the person I become, so I will seek to imitate the nail-pierced one. I will step in the direction of my strengths and talents, they are spirit-given tools for my God-given tasks. I will pay attention to my persistent aspirations. They could be the whispers of God. I will serve all I can and walk deeply with a few. I will aim for great things, but leave my legacy to God. The path is long and the terrain at times hard. Still, I will not wish for another's life. I will take my place, play my part. Something important will be missed if I don't. For the hand that spins the galaxies wants me well Sheridan wonderful to hear these deep sentiments and I know that listeners will be drawn into some more deeper thinking about their own making let me point people to a copy of your new book it's called the making of us who we can become when life doesn't go as planned our guest has been Sheridan Voisey. He's a writer, a speaker, a broadcaster. There's some websites that you might like to jot down where you can download a copy of The Creeds. You can get that at themakingofus.com. That's themakingofus.com. And, of course, there are some other books, too, that Sheridan has written. His other books include Resurrection Year, Turning Broken Dreams into New Beginnings, Resilient and the award-winning Unseen Footprints and you can get a hold of those at SheridanVoisey.com and let me say get a hold of those at any good Christian bookstore. Sheridan Voisey, wonderful to get your insights. Appreciate you taking some time to talk to listeners here on 2020 Today. Oh, Thanks, Neil. Really appreciate the time with you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. 
Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.